Hello, and welcome to this Solus Church podcast. Thanks for tuning in. We pray that God speaks to you today through this message. For more sermon content and information, visit solaschurch.com. Okay, um, so I was here six weeks ago, something like that. And what was my ology? Do we know? Christology, and um, I think it morphed into um, bibliology, right? Because the whole uh, PowerPoint I have on bibliology, I just showed um, I just showed Andrew over here, and he's like, "Yeah, you did that last time." And so, um, so uh, here's what I'd like to do tonight. Um, the question uh, that I'd like to address is. Uh, First of all, is is the Bible supernatural? Okay, is the Bible supernatural, um, or is this just a book? Is there power in this? Um, different than War and Peace, or even the Quran, or anything like that? Is there is there something about this book that's unique and different? And uh, I know uh, whenever I was here last time. Uh, I pointed out that when we call this a book, uh, just like the video said, it's, it's, it's really 66 of them. And that's part of the beauty of it. Because, let's face it, uh, you're being asked to make a decision. And atheists will say, don't bother with any of it. Muslims will say, you've got to know the Quran. Uh, Jews will say you're just good with the Old Testament, right? Christians will say it's both testaments. Uh, and then, of course, you can get into other religions and, and their books. And the, one, the only thing that can't be true of reality is that all of those lead to heaven. Because literally all those major religions say they're the only one. So if all of them do, then everyone says that they're the only one are wrong. And if they're wrong, then they're not trustworthy. So we're really in this position of we've got to make a decision. And when you make a decision, you want evidence, correct? You want stuff that helps you to be sure that you're right. And this is where I think Christianity just completely laps everybody else. It just far exceeds in the evidence which truth does when compared to falsehood, correct? Okay. So uh, if we're talking about the supernatural capacity of the Bible, there's so many different ways to go about this, but I would start with what would be a more difficult book to pull off? single author um, telling a story just from his perspective and then it's up to you to say I trust him or not or 40 authors over 1400 years on three different continents all telling a unified story what on the surface now becomes more trustworthy the 40, because you ought to have tremendous discrepancies, tremendous amounts of contradictions, all of that. If I asked you guys simply to share a message in each other's ears and go through the, through the room, your, your message would come out different over here. You wouldn't be able to give me one unified message if we played the little telephone game across the room, would we? Comes out different every time. 
Now, can you imagine over 1,400 years, three different continents, and I know we hear this word way too much now, but it shows there can't be collusion between these 40 authors because they live in different areas of the world in over a 1,400-year period. They can't get together and say, hey, let's fool the world with this, uh, th this book. It can't be done. So supernatural aspects of it. I want to, um, we could talk about prophecy, but uh, Andrew said you did that. We could talk about um, uh, miracles. I don't think I did that. But uh, let me just say a couple things about miracles. Do you know, um, Muhammad was asked, uh, somebody said to Muhammad, hey, Jesus has miracles. What are your miracles? Because miracles to them were uh, credentials. Like, you want to say you're a prophet of God, then do, do a miracle. You know, so it's kind of a credential thing. God actually says that's an okay way to look at it because God says you'll know a true prophet if their prophecy comes true, right? Pretty simple. What he says comes true. He's a true prophet. It doesn't come true. Not only does he say he's not a true prophet, he says, and stone him to death. Why? Because this is serious business. It's serious business to lead people astray on the things of God. So um, what I want to kind of uh, show you guys uh, with a couple of examples, and then what we're going to do, so if you're actually looking for where are you going to go in your Bible tonight, it's Isaiah chapter 40. But what I'd like to do is to give you kind of this sampler platter evidence of the supernatural capacity of the Bible before I get into Isaiah 40, because Isaiah 40 is going to accomplish two things for us tonight. It's extremely ministerial to help us with our lives, and it's highly apologetic in the sense that it says things in Isaiah 40 that an 8th century B.C. prophet could not possibly know, but he knows. That's a sign of supernatural, isn't it? Okay, and I'll give you, I'll give you those examples when we get there. So, um, in, in, the, in, the, in the light of this is supposed to be about bibliology, let me say this. It's very important that we learn how to read the Bible. The Bible is, you know, people say to me, hey, I, I just got saved and I have this Bible, where do I start? Can you think of any other book where people ask you where to start? Wouldn't you say the beginning to any book? But in the Bible, you don't have to, right? You could say, start in Luke's gospel, get the whole birth narrative of Christ, and you're like, okay, where's that? And you're going to bring them like four-fifths to the end and go, yeah, that's a good starting spot, okay? So... Um, what, what I want to show you guys is this. All these different authors over different time and so forth, look, I want to show you just how unified this thing is. Um, how many of you were here last time I was here? I did something where I, I, I did Jacob's Ladder in, in Genesis 22 or somewhere around there, or 28. I, I showed you how John 1 is speaking of that, and I showed you how Revelation 19 is speaking of that, Correct. Okay, I showed you how that encompasses all 66 books and it's telling one story. Well, there's other ways to show this unity throughout the Bible. One of those is this. You're familiar with Luke chapter 1, the birth narrative of Jesus Christ. There the shepherds are in the field. An angel speaks to these shepherds and says, um, the Lord will give you a sign. There'll be a sign. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling Okay, you just hit my pet peeve, <laughs> one of my pet peeves. It's swaddling cloths, not clothes. 
I don't know why everybody says clothes. There's no E in the word. Um, it's swaddling cloths. Um, so uh, you'll find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. Now, when the Bible says the Lord himself will show you a sign, you'll get a sign. You know it doesn't mean a sign. I just can't believe my name was right there when I pointed that. But uh, he doesn't mean a sign like that, does he? What does he mean by sign? Give me one word you think sign might mean when it says the Lord's going to give you a sign. Okay, a vision, evidence, but it literally means a miracle. Something that you go, that has to be from the Lord. There's no person that could have made that happen. So let me ask you guys this. What exactly is so impressive about finding a child wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger that would make them say, it's got to be God? What is it? I have a nine-week-old grandson. We wrap him in swaddling cloths. Nobody goes, it must be God. Is it the manger? First of all, when I say manger, what image comes into your mind? What do you, how, who can describe it really, really quick for me? Manger, what's it look like in your mind? It's a cow feeder. A cow feeder. So it's like a... What's it made of? Okay, all of you are thinking of like 19th century European mangers. Do you think Jesus Christ was laid in a 19th century European manger? Probably not. Probably a first century Middle Eastern manger, agreed? Here's what a first century Middle Eastern manger was. If this is like a cave wall, they would go to that cave wall and they would chisel out a flat bed out of it and they would put the animal feed on there and the animals would feed off of that. So it was made of stone. Okay. Jesus' manger would have been made out of stone. Now, they would um, dig a little deeper in the middle so it would have a rim so the food wouldn't fall off. And here's the sign that, of the shepherds. You'll find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths. Now, when you swaddle a child, okay, I was just at these lessons at the hospital and we took our grandson home. You put right hand on left shoulder. You put left hand on right shoulder. You put their feet together, if not crossing them over, but just as long as they're together, and you wrap them very tight. There's a way to get them very tight because they're trying to recreate the womb experience, the comfort of the womb for the child, okay? So um, Jesus is swaddled, and he's wrapped up in these cloths, okay? And he's put into this stone bed, and when you are a shepherd and you're approaching this stone bed and there's these cloths wrapped around this body on this stone bed, you're approaching that. It looks no different than if you were at a funeral approaching the dead body, mummified, wrapped up, lying on a stone bed. That's what their sarcophaguses were like. They were just stone uh, beds to put the bodies in. So it, Jesus would have every appearance of being dead. So what's the sign? You get there, you look, and he's alive. He'll have the appearance of death, but he'll be alive. It's the same exact thing that's going on when Mary and Joseph leave him in Jerusalem when he's 12 years old. What would every parent's fear be as they are a couple days journey out and they go, hey, where's Jesus? 
I thought you had them. No, I thought you had them. Now, before you get the whole Home Alone picture in your mind, they traveled as entire villages, and it would just be natural to scoop up whatever kids and, and move on. And so they weren't entirely irresponsible, as the story may sound. But when they realize they don't have him, especially you parents, what is the fear that is chilling through your veins as you realize your kid is not with you? What's the worst? You always think of worst case scenarios, which would be they're dead. Now, the Bible tells you specifically they get back to Jesus and find him on what day? The third day. And how do they find him on the third day? Alive. Okay? You see, God is constantly preparing your hearts for third day resurrection. He's always preparing your heart for third day resurrection. Jesus has the appearance of death, but he's not. And there's over 40 times in the Old Testament that the term third day comes up. And every one of those times, it's some sort of new life coming on the third day, whether it's Joshua has to wait at the Jordan until the third day that he crosses and goes into the promised land. Uh, that's when Abraham sees the mountain that he has to sacrifice his son is on the third day. It's all in preparation for the most important news that any human being will ever hear, and that is that the resurrection of your Savior will be on the third day. Same type of language works for when you read in the Bible about men that rise early in the morning. Joshua rose early in the morning, got all the Israelites together, they got to the Jordan, and they entered in, and the waters parted, and they crossed on the, on, uh, after he rose early in the morning. Abraham rose early in the morning when he brought his son Isaac up. Um, great men accomplish their great deed that they're known for when the Bible says they rise early in the morning. So you guys that are like on summer break and you got up at two this afternoon, just saying. All right. Now, why are we always told these great men are accomplishing great deeds when they rise early in the morning? Because the greatest of men will accomplish the greatest of deeds when he rises early on a Sunday morning. Okay. You are always being prepared to receive this most important message you will ever hear in your life. It's the only mandatory message you have to get right. You don't have to get married. You don't have to have kids. You don't have to work certain jobs. Those are all options. This one's not optional. And that's why God has prepared you for 1,400 years through the writings of the prophets and the apostles for this message. How else does the Bible work like this? All right. True or false, Jesus has to be sinless uh, to be the Savior. True, correct? He has to be sinless. We get that all the way back with the sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Uh, the, 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 the offering of the animal had to be perfect and spotless and all of that, correct? Pointing for the need of a perfect Savior. Now, Jesus gets accused of wrongdoing in a certain story where he does not even defend himself. So let's talk about that for a second. It's John chapter 2. It's John chapter 2. It's at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. And Jesus changes water into wine. And the master of the banquet accuses him of what? Not following the wedding custom, right? We have a custom, and you violated it. You're supposed to save the good wine or the bad wine for last, right? The bad wines last, you put the best wine last, you violated the wedding custom. What was Jesus' defense? How did he defend that? He didn't, did he? So if you're, if you're tuned in to what's happening, you're going to go, 
did he violate the wedding custom and just not care and not defend it? Or how do we understand this? Well, this is how you're to read your Bible. It's in Revelation chapter 7, uh, I'm sorry, Revelation chapter 19, verse 15 says this, that Jesus is treading out the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of God Almighty. That means the picture of God's wrath and end times and unbelievers is of Jesus stomping grapes to get all the juice out, making wine. That violence that's required for a grape to become wine, it's a picture of his judgment. But it's given the analogy of being wine. That's the bad wine. And when's it come? The opposite of first is? Last. Right. It's last. It's in Revelation. He saved the bad wine for last. He did not violate the wedding custom. You just have to wait to get to judgment for the bad wine, right? So the Bible is always doing that, okay? And do you, do you realize the, um, the amount of expertise writing it would require, the Shakespearean brilliance it would be required to put that together? And, uh, you know, the video, this is what I disagreed about the video, by the way. They said these prophets were these starling writers, and that, no, they were shepherd. They were ordinary guys. That's why it's so impressive. The New Testament is 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 fishermen who were rejected by the rabbinical schools, and that's why they're doing their father's business and all that. And Jesus chose them, and they become the best-selling authors in the history of the world. Okay, the authors that have changed more lives through their writing than any author ever has. So. Um, I'll give you one more, and this one's kind of mind-blowing, uh, if I can tell it well. You're familiar with the Samaritan woman of John 4? Are you guys following this? Yeah. All right, because I don't have my glasses on. Your faces are all fuzzy. As far as I know, you're asleep right now. All right. Yeah? I don't want to create a spirit of fear here. All right. So um, I just promised you something. I forgot what it was. What was it? Samaritan woman. Okay. So, how many husbands does she have? Five husbands. And she's currently doing what? Lim what? Oh, I thought you said something else. Okay. All right. She's living with a sixth, right? There's a sixth one in her life. She's living out of wedlock with him. And Jesus saves her in that chapter, correct? Uh, and you know that because uh, he led her in the prayer and all that, correct? You're, you're like, I don't know. You're right. They're like, I don't know if I should say yes or not. No, there was no prayer. How, how does the Bible tell you she's a saved woman? She went back to the village and told all the village, pe um, village people. That's a weird thing to call them. <laughs> all the people in the village. Um, <laughs> so, but the Bible gave you another wonderful, beautiful clue that she was a saved woman. She, she, there's, there's a discourse that goes on between Jesus and her about water, isn't there? Okay, give me a drink. Why, you're a Jew. Why do you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink? Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. If you knew the gift of God and who it was that asked you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. That's the Holy Spirit, right? I, I'll give you salvation if you ask, right? If you knew who I was, you'd be asking me for that right now, okay? And... So the discourse is centered on water. Now, 
when she leaves to go tell the people in the village all about Jesus, here's what the Bible says. She left her water pot and went into the village. Here's what Jesus said. If you drink of the water I give you, you'll never thirst again. So here's what the Bible says. So she let down her water pot and she went into the village. Why does she not bring her water pot with her? The Bible's going to tell you she's never going to thirst again. She's taken of the living water. Okay? That's her salvation. How many, how many of you could say I read John 4 at least 10 times in my life? You have to know the Bible's telling you things that you've, you've got to read a little slower. You've got to ask yourself some questions. There, there's, there's a term I'm going to give you. You can write it down because if you tell anybody else's term, they're going to go, wow, they must be really, really smart. Okay? It's called logographic necessity. I said you got to write it down, and all I saw was phones go up. It's such a new day and age, man. Jeez. L-O-G-O-G-R-A-P-H-I-C, necessity. Logographic necessity simply means this. Every word of the Bible is necessary. There is no fluff in the Bible. There's no extraneous details. If the Bible says it, it's for a reason and a purpose. So you can take any detail of the Bible you want and go, I wonder what God means by that, and you'll find something. And I hope you see that through some of these examples that I've given you here. Now, let's go to Isaiah 40. Now, how many chapters are in Isaiah? 66. How many books are in the Bible? How many Old Testament books are in the Bible? 39. The first 39 chapters of Isaiah are largely judgment upon nations. Okay, God's going to judge, 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 judge all these nations. 39 chapters. Then you hit chapter 40, and the next 27 chapters, just like there's 27 New Testament books, is restoration. Usually I play Twilight Zone music in the background as I say that. It's much more effective. So therefore, Isaiah is kind of called the mini Bible. All right? It is, it is uh, largely referred to as a fifth gospel. Um, it, it, it's so much about Jesus Christ uh, that they call it a fifth gospel. I don't know why they should call it the first gospel because it was uh, written 800 years before the other four were written. Um, and uh, so 39 chapters that are largely about judgment. And then when you read chapter 40, the first words become utterly shocking. It doesn't seem to fit the flow. Because remember, Isaiah didn't write in chapters. He just wrote this one long letter that became 66 chapters in here. But there's such a change of tone after 39 where chapter 40 says comfort, and that would make them say, how could you say that word after all this judgment that's going on? And, and chapter 40 starts with comfort. Yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, starting in verse 3, we're going to encounter three voices that I want to talk about tonight. We're going to encounter three voices. Two of those voices, I think, are going to sound familiar to you. I want to see if you can figure out where you've heard these before. So verse 3 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness. Now, I will tell you that in Hebrew, they didn't have any punctuation going on. 
So the translators have to make a decision about punctuation. It is largely believed in scholarly circles that this verse 3, the punctuation should not be after wilderness. It's not the voice of one crying in the wilderness. It's the voice of one crying, comma, quote. Here's what he's crying. In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Do that in the wilderness. Make straight in the desert, so now you get this parallelism between wilderness and desert, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord is spoken. Now, why does that sound familiar? Because John the Baptist said, I'm the guy, I'm the voice, right? And where was he crying? In the wilderness, by the Jordan, right? So it makes sense if it's a voice crying and he's saying, hey, in the wilderness, make straight paths for the Lord. Now, here's what he's getting at. When a king would travel, he would not travel and then they'd be like, well, there's a mountain we got to go over or there's a valley we got to go down through or there's a forest we got to go around. They would cut straight paths from point A to point B for that king and he would not go over bumps. They would smooth it completely out. Kings travel that way, that well. So when John the Baptist says that these verses, and he says, these verses are me. I'm the one saying, uh, make straight paths for the Lord. He's saying you have a king coming. That's what he's saying at the Jordan. There's a king coming to you. So make straight paths in the wilderness. Now, John the Baptist is not telling them to cut down trees and, and smooth out the ground. He's telling them to repent. Isn't that what he's doing at the Jordan? Repent of your sins. So the Bible's saying that the wilderness is your heart. And there's a king coming that's going to be the king of your heart, and you've got to prepare the way for him. And the way that you make his path straight is by repenting of your sin, turning away from your self-worship, acknowledging that this king will be your king, and he's entirely sovereign over you. So you make these straight paths for him. It's a, the, the first voice is saying, in summary form, repent because your king is coming. So make your crooked ways straight. Fill in your valleys, level out your mountains, be uh, blameless, repent of your sin. You have a king who wants to come to you. That was John the Baptist's message at the Jordan. That's voice number one. Verse six starts voice number two. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Let's see if this is familiar to you. This is what he wants him to cry. All flesh is grass, and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Familiar? It's in the New Testament, right? Peter writes it, and I think it's 1 Peter. It might be 2 Peter, but I think it's 1 Peter. He writes that. Now, what's happening here? Well, this voice is saying, listen, all flesh is grass. And then he says, what is this fleshly grass? It says, surely the people 
are grass. We're the grass. Some might rise up above the crowds and, and be a little bit more beautiful or admirable or whatever. They might become the flower of the field and go, look at me, I'm the flower of the field. You guys are just grass. But what does it say about the flower? Fades. You lose your beauty, all that stuff, all your splendor and all that. So in other words, grass is temporary, flowers are temporary, correct? So it's pretty sad verses, correct? Because it says we're all that, we're temporary, right? And then it says what at the end? But what stands forever? The word of the Lord stands forever. So now you can sit there and go, well, now I'm jealous of the word of the Lord. I wish I were the word of the Lord. Well, John 1 says in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And then it says, if you're going, well, what does that mean? And who could this word be? Verse 14 says the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. And it's clearly pointing to who? Jesus Christ is the word, correct? And where is Jesus Christ wanting to dwell? Right here. So if he dwells right here. I leave my category as fading flower or withering grass, and I enter into the category of standing forever, don't I? I now, with the word of God here, went from death to life, withering and fading to standing forever, okay? Now, <clears throat> guys with me? All right. So voice one says you have a king coming to you, so you need to do what? And how do you prepare yourself? Repent. Repent. I would say this, and I hope I'm not putting Andrew on the spot, but if you're six months in church and you haven't heard the word, word repent ten times, change churches. We need to hear repent all the time. All the time. We are a nation full of Christians who never repent of their sin. And it's deadly. Anyways. Um, okay, voice one. You have a king coming to you, so repent of your sin. King two, he's coming to make you eternal. That's why he's coming, correct? To bring you from death to life. Okay, verse nine. Oh, Zion. Zion is kind of this metaphor word for the people of God. Okay? It's an actual mountain, um, and the Bible uses it as a metaphor for the people of God. So, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, get up into the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, in their day, when they told somebody to go up into a high mountain, it's because they're being pursued in battle and somebody needs to see where the enemy's coming from. So there was always bad news because the news that came from the mountain was always the enemy's there, the enemy's there, we got to keep going or whatever. So this is a little shocking to 8th century B.C. ears to hear, get up on the high mountain, you who bring what kind of news? You bring good news, right? Good tidings. So what's this good news and good tidings? It says you need to lift up your voice with strength. And you need to not be afraid. And you need to say to the cities, behold your God. Behold's one of my favorite words in the Bible. It pretty much means this. 
get ready for a truth that's not a part of your human experience. It's a part of God's economy, which is bigger than your brain. It's bigger than your experience. So you have to behold it. You just can't consider it. You just can't look at it. You just can't whatever. Don't approach this humanly, understanding your gigantic God, who's eternally big, is now giving you a part of his reality. Okay? So you have to behold. Okay? So it says, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Now, verse 10 is going to start telling us the things to behold. Verse 10 says, behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand. And his arms shall rule for him. This is the king that's coming from the first voice, right? That wants to make you eternal. So he says, he's coming with a strong hand. His arms shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So when it speaks of strong arm and ruling, what kind of image? Just, just name some sort of person with strong arm and, and, and rule and authority. King, warrior king, like a David, like a warrior king type of thing, right? So it's saying... Your God is coming, and he's a warrior. So you're getting this warlike imagery going. And then verse 11 says this. And you, you guys got to catch that this is confusing, shocking, and all that. It, it's demanding your consideration, okay? Because after this warrior image, what does it say in verse 11? He'll feed his flock like a shepherd. And you go, that's my warrior king. A shepherd. It could almost be disappointing, right? If you're thinking of warlike terms, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm. If you're going, hey, I don't have to worry about the enemy because I got a warrior king. Oh, really? What gives you such great confidence? You should see him pick up a lamb so tenderly. It'll scare the heck out of the enemy. Right? That's what it's saying here, right? He'll feed his flock like a shepherd. He'll gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. So Christ is being pictured as a king. Who's, who's powerful, awesome, warrior, and gentle as a shepherd caring for a lamb. Isn't that wonderful? Okay. Don't lose the shock value because you have to behold, remember? This is stuff to behold. Verse 12. So now you got this warrior shepherd image, and now to give you further description of this God to behold, verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? What do you think it means by the hollow of your hand? What's the hollow of your hand? It's your palm, right? So here's what this is saying. You want to get a picture of this God that wants, this king that wants to come to you to make you eternal? Here's the deal. Do you know anybody else that measured the waters of the earth in the hollow of his hand? God said, how much water do I put on the earth? And he looked at the water in the palm of his hand, which, look it up yourselves. I think it was a NASA website. There's 332 billion, no, I'm sorry, 332,500,000 cubic miles of water on the earth. And God goes, that, that, that's what's right there. Okay. And so what's the question? Who else can measure water like that? Okay. Who has measured heaven with a span? Anybody know what a span is? Pinky to thumb. So you can measure stuff like this, and this is a little less than three spans. Okay? That's a span. <coughs> this says, hey, who's measured the waters in the hollow of sand and measured heaven with a span? Now, we just look at other galaxies, and we, ha we can't use actual, like, 
measurements like miles, because there's you can't count that many miles. So what measurement do we use for distance? Light years. The amount of time it takes light traveling at 186,000 miles every single second. Okay? So six, seven, eight, nine, ten. That was 1.8 million miles light just went and when I just counted the ten there. Okay? So when we, we, we can measure galaxies and go, that one that we see in our telescope right now, and they can say is millions of light years away. Okay? Now, and if this screen is the entire universe, the observable universe, you'll hear NASA use that term, the observable universe, is only like a square inch of it. That's all we can see. We know there's way, way more, but we just can't see it all. Okay, so just in, the, uh, 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 just in the observable universe, it would blow your mind to say, God said, that's my pinky to my thumb. That's your universe. Okay. Now, these are all anthropomorphic uh, ideas to give human beings something to chew on, but it, it's probably way more dramatically awesome than I'm, I'm saying. Who weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? So those things that we put, like, fruits and vegetables on the way I'm out. He goes, I did that with all your mountains and hills. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has taught him? Here's a confession of sin for me. I've done that. God, you should do this this way. God, you should take my advice and rule the universe this way. Okay. He was saying, who in the heck is anybody to guide the Lord and counsel him? Okay. With whom did he take counsel and who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, and that the call of the third voice, so here's another behold. Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket. Now, every single human activity, let's not count scuba diving or going down in a submarine or anything like that, but every human activity in the history of human activities has taken place somewhere in the nations, on land, correct? So our whole experience is in the nations. And is it here it says, to him they're a drop in the bucket. They're not everything like they are to us. They're counted as the small dust on the scales. Look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. And Lebanon is not sufficient to burn, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. In other words, if he gave all the beasts of Lebanon as a burnt offering, a sacrifice, you would not be doing him justice for his worthiness, right? All nations before him are as nothing, and they're counted by him as less than nothing and worthless. So to whom then will you liken God? Listen, if I had to give three themes for the Old Testament, I promise you this would be one of the three. If I had to give one theme for the Old Testament, this might be it. And it's we are idol-making factories as human beings. We cannot avoid idolatry. It is the huge sin that sank all the people that sank in the Bible is idolatry, some sort of idolatry. So God says this in verse 18, to whom then will you liken me or what likeness will you compare to him? And he says, here's what people like to do. The workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. And whoever's too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. So here's what people do. They'll go, I'm going to take this gold and silver, and hey, you say, hey, I want to worship God too, but I can't afford gold and silver. 
They'll say, you'll get a tree from some wood that doesn't rot, and you make an image, and you worship the image. Um, the whole division of Israel, two, two kingdoms, north and south, Israel, Judah, was the very first thing King Jeroboam did when he became the Israel northern kingdom's first king. He made two golden calves because he said they're going to go down back to Judah and worship in the temple, and I'll never see him again. So he made two golden calves. Where did he learn that from? Aaron's idolatrous heart, right? He makes those two golden calves, and he says, here are your gods that brought you out of Egypt. And they go, that sounds reasonable. Okay? And they worship the golden calves. Listen, we don't do stuff like that, but what posters were on your wall growing up? Just what excites you the most? The Almighty God or the rapper? You know? Uh, we are idol-making factories. John Calvin, the human mind is an idol factory. Okay, listen, I, 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 got, I do it all the time. I got to stop. I got, but awareness is how you stop. Now, this is saying, I love this. It says, you make it, but you got to make it so it doesn't totter. Do you ever wonder to yourself, I wonder if God tottered lately. I wonder if he just fell. Okay? But when you become an idol, uh, uh, when you become an idolater, God says this, you will become like your idol. And you know how he describes the idol that you'll become like? He says, they, you made eyes on them, but they can't see. You put ears on them, they can't hear. You put a mouth on them, yet they can't speak. They are deaf, dumb, and blind, and you're going to be just like that. Now, does it mean you literally go deaf, dumb, and blind? No. But doesn't Isaiah say this? God, Isaiah says, here I am, send me, God, right? And God says, go and tell this people, be ever seeing, but never understanding, be ever hearing, but never perceiving. Go and render the hearts of my people dull so that they can't turn around and repent and be healed. Okay? I got your question, even though you're just moving your body, but yeah, I get it. Okay. All right, you can ask that at q and I'm actually writing a paper right now on that very thing. So, um, yeah. All right. So, <laughs> Joe's just like... <laughs> okay. So anyways, um, um, so you will become like your idol. Um, now, it says, but make it so it doesn't totter. And here's why I like that. Because when the Philistines got the Ark of the Covenant, they put it into the temple of their god Dagon. The next day they go in to worship Dagon, and he had tottered. He fell over. So instead of going, oh, my gosh, that's a sign, they picked him up. They just picked him up. And they go, we'll try again tomorrow. They came in the next day, and he tottered. But this time, the word for fallen is the word that is used for those that fall prostrate in the form of worship. So it's like Dagon is pictured as before the ark in worship, and his head had fallen off, and his hands had fallen off, right? What's the Bible telling you by that? He's got no wisdom. He's got no power, right? No head, no hands, okay? So um, I have a rabbit trail that would probably interest you and cause Joe to ask questions. So I'll just use that as a teaser and not do anything with it, okay? <laughs> You're like my college buddies in the dorm, man. Just do it, man. Come on, do it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's just this, listen, 
Um, Andrew might not appreciate this, but it's your last night. I'll never be invited back anyway. So here we go. Oh, I'm teaching Sunday. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, isn't it? Aren't we told? Aren't we asked to believe that in end times there's a mark of the beast that'll go on the hand or the head, and it'll be like 666 and all that? Even atheists know that. So don't you think when somebody says, "Hey, you want to buy and sell? Put the 666 on your," don't you think people go, "Wait a minute." That's in the Bible is evil. I'm not doing, I think even atheists go, well, that's just a step too far because that's weird that you want that and that's in the, do you think anybody would actually be dumb enough to go, hey, yeah, sure, let's do it. I don't think it's, it's a mark on your head or your hand. The Bible uses the head and the hand as your thoughts and your deeds. It's going to say your thoughts and your deeds are going to be entirely wicked and end times. Okay. I might be wrong, but that's what I think. All right, anyway, and I get that from Dagon. The picture of Dagon is he has no wisdom, he has no power. How does God show that? He has his head fall off and his hands fall off. Yes, that's right. Oh, yes, good. So I'm still on for Sunday. All right, okay. I was trying to sleep in Sunday, but I'll, I'll come. All right, um, 20, whoever is, no, 21. I, I love how God does this. He says, have you not known? Have you not heard? In other words, you should already know this. Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Every time the Bible uses the word beginning, what are you to think of? Genesis 1-1, creation in the beginning, right? God's saying, I've said this from the beginning. You've been told this from the beginning. Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth. Now, when did Isaiah write this? 8th century B.C., correct? When did we learn that the earth is round? And please, if you're a flat earther, just go with it for a minute, okay? <laughs> All right? And that laughter is how I feel about your flat earthing anyway. Uh, you, you could say Columbus. Let's go 1492 if you want to do that. That's the earliest, right? They definitely thought the earth was flat up until that point. So if you say 1500, this is written in 800 B.C., that's 2,300 years before we had an indication the world was round. Isaiah said it's he who sits above the circle of the earth. How did he know? Googled NASA photographs, right? Okay. Inspiration, supernatural ability of the Bible. Um, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. It's he who stretches out the heavens like a curtain. I like that one even better. It's saying he stretches out the heavens like a curtain. How do you stretch out a, a curtain? It's from a point of singularity, and from that point of singularity, you stretch it out from there. It's exactly what Einstein proved in the early 1900s about the beginning of the universe. It started from a point of singularity and has been expanding outward from them. That's the very early 1900s. Einstein discovered that, and the Hubble supported that, and they kept proving it over and over again, the expanding universe. And that's 1900. This is 800 BC. That's 2,700 years before our smartest scientists figured it out. Isaiah says, listen, he's stretching out the heavens like a curtain. It's exact picture of our expanding universe. Inspiration, supernatural. Um, when was Moses told to circumcise the boys? Eighth day, correct? So here's what we know medically now. When you're, uh, circumcision is a bloody surgery. 
and you need your blood to clot so that you don't bleed out, right? So if I poke a hole in my arm, my body will start patching that hole all by itself, correct? If I poke a hole in my milk carton, it doesn't heal itself, right? The milk all comes out. But your body will not allow that hap to happen to your blood. Isn't evolution wonderful? Don't nod your head yes. I was being totally sarcastic. Evolution could never figure out how to do something like that. The first person that ever would have bled would have bled out completely, unless there was a divine designer to say, no, I designed you to heal yourself. Now, it takes prothrobin and vitamin K to get your blood to clot. When you're born, your prothrobin and vitamin K levels escalate every day and they become 115% of what they'll be for the rest of your life on day eight. And after day eight, they decline for the rest of your lives. God said, hey, do that bloody surgery on the eighth day. Okay, it's things that we know now. So the plague in Europe, the black plague in Europe killed one third of all the population, right? One of the problems they had that they couldn't stop the plague was the doctors, because they didn't really know about germs and all that, they had a big basin of water, and they would do work on, on, the, on the patients, and then they'd wash their hands in still sitting water, not knowing they're putting germs in there, and the next doctor put his germs in there, and, and they just go with these germy hands, and they can't stop the plague. It was suggested that Moses wrote in Deuteronomy, he said God told them to use running water to clean their hands, so they started using running water, and that's what stopped the spread of the plague. Supernatural. Okay. All right. 23. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely shall their stock take root in the earth when he sh will also blow on them. What happened in the first verses when God blows on us? We wither like the grass. We fade like the flower. Right? It says he'll blow on them and they will wither. And the world one will take them away like stubble. Who's this? These are the rulers of the earth. All the craziness of the elections and all that. God said, I'm just going to blow on them. They're going to be gone. What are you fussing over? Now, this is saying your rulers and all of that are going to have boastful claims and all that. But it's nothing because you have a ruler who doesn't fade and wither. Okay? Um, 1930s, there's a gentleman named Adolf Hitler who proclaimed that he was inaugurating a 1,000-year reign of Nazism. Nazism died at the age of 12. The Lord simply breathes on them, and they become no more. Okay. To whom then will you liken me? God is saying, name one person that can do any of the stuff that I'm telling you I've done. Or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these things. So what do you think God's referring to when he suggests to you to lift your eyes up on high and see who created these things? What's he pointing you to? Say what? The stars. He's saying go outside at night, look up, and ask yourself this. Who made that? Who brings out their host by number and calls them all by name? By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. Now, look this up for yourself. We have seen through telescopes, never mind all the universe that we haven't seen. In our telescopes, we have seen approximately two 
trillion galaxies, each galaxy averaging about 100 million stars apiece. Two trillion galaxies, each one of those two trillion galaxies averaging 100 million stars apiece, just what our telescopes are able to point at and see. And God says, who made that? Who calls them by name? And if you read Job, he actually names Orion and some other of the constellations and things like that. And he knows these billions of trillions of stars by name. And there's only one other thing in God's creation that is credited with him knowing by name. And what is that? You. So what does he say about that? says, so why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord and my just claim is passed over by my God? He says, I know the billions of trillions of stars by name and not one of them is missing and you are the climax of my creation. So why do you say in your heart that I don't know your cause? I don't know what you're going through. Why would you say that? He says, if you ever feel that way, go out at night. Now, we live in light polluted areas, right? light pollution everywhere. You can't really see the stars. But just consider that any one of them that you see, you could fit thousands of Earths in that one that you're looking at. And most of those stars are so dense that if you took one cubic inch of those stars and dropped it on the Earth, it would penetrate all the way through China and go out the other side. Okay? And God said, ask yourself how that got there. Have you not known? Have you not heard? Do you hear the heart of God in that language? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youth shall faint and be weary. Youths are not the ones that normally faint and get weary, correct? I, I refer you to my two-year-old granddaughter who does not stop moving full speed every waking hour of the day. But even you shall faint and be weary, and the young men, they should be the strongest, right? Young men will utterly fall, but those who wait on the Lord, the word wait in Hebrew is the picture of a rope when it's pulled tight, tout. That's the only time it's strong, correct? When it has slack, it has no strength at all. But when it's pulled tight, now it's strong. That's the word picture of the word wait in the Bible. Okay? Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now, this chapter started by saying, Grass withers, flowers fade, and surely people are grass, right? But the word of God stands forever. So you want to be like the word of God, correct? So he wants to make you like him. Does that make sense? Your king is coming to you. He wants to make you like him. He wants to make you eternal. And how does this chapter end? It ends with, if you wait on the Lord, you're going to renew your strength. Well, let me put it this way. It says in 28, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. Then it says what? 
and those who wait on the Lord will neither faint or be weary. You will be like him. You see that? He neither faints or is weary, and those who wait on the Lord will neither faint or be weary, but instead you will mount up with wings like eagles. You will run, not be weary. You shall walk and not faint. Amen? Amen. Thanks again for tuning in. We pray that you were blessed by today's message. If you'd like to visit us in person, we gather at Don Estridge High Tech Middle School in Boca Raton, Florida, every Sunday morning at 10 a.m. For more sermon content and information, you can check out solaschurch.com.